There is nowhere else for us to go. Christ is the only answer. He is the only sanctuary. He is the only true salvation. And so we are happy each week to come back again and again until his return to praise his name, to glorify him, to lift him up. Uh, we are thankful for the opportunity to worship him freely in the way that we do. And as tomorrow being Independence Day, we uh, as Americans love to celebrate our freedoms. But I think we should also uh, learn to celebrate our dependence as well as our independence, right? We get to depend on a Lord who is good and who is holy and who is mighty. And every uh, time we lack something, the Lord is there to provide it for us. He gives us strength to endure every storm. He gives us wisdom to navigate every difficult path. And so we are here to worship Him and we're grateful for the ways that He blesses us and draws us near to Him. We are in Hosea as we have been studying through this prophetic book, the first of the Minor Prophets. Chapter 4 of Hosea opens by considering the health of three relationships that Israel should be valuing. Israel's relationship with God is first and foremost. Is this a healthy relationship? Uh, as we have read uh, from the book of Hosea, we have come to see that this is not a healthy relationship. The Lord God is not pleased with those who are in the north. Their lack of faithfulness to Him has reached epidemic levels. And so the Lord God, last week we learned, is pressing charges against the northern kingdom. He is bringing a controversy against them. Um, and so this first relationship is, is in very much so in trouble. Second relationship, Israel's relationship with his fellow man. Is this relationship in good shape? No. Sin abounds in the northern kingdom. We learned that some of the charges that are being brought against Israel by God uh, is that they are breaking each of the Ten Commandments that are supposed to define the covenant relationship that God has established with His people. So not only is the vertical relationship that is so crucial to Israel's well-being in danger, but also their horizontal relationships, their relationships with one another are in dire straits. But there's a third relationship that we're going to talk about today, this morning. We're going to look at Israel's relationship with creation. Is Israel's relationship with the things that God has made is it a right, right relationship? No, it is not. Just as the first two relationships are in danger, because of their sin, the land and all of creation is also in great distress. And so these three categories of relationship, they're not of equal value. Uh, these relationships are to be founded on the most important relationship, the relationship that man is to have with God. Uh, even professing believers today would agree that the valuation on paper that God's relationship is the most important isn't always walked out in the way that we live our lives. And that's part of the reason why we come to the table of God and experience communion. It's part of the reason why he draws us back to rest on the, the Sabbath each week so that we can refocus again on the, the power of God and realize that he needs to be the center focus of our lives. But we as human beings, we often fail to keep him there in the center of our focus. We often get distracted. We often allow different things in our lives to pull our attention away from God. And when we do that, when God is not central to us, when we are putting our emphasis and our focus and our energies into things besides the Lord, then the other relationships in our lives begin to suffer. There is an undeniable trickle-down effect. When our relationships with, with, relationship with the Lord is not right, then the relationship that we have with others will then follow after and we'll, we'll soon be off kilter as well. How many of us trying to paint a room in our homes, trying to save some time, have, have gone to the hardware store and say, wow, this stuff's expensive. And if you've been to a hardware store, paint is ridiculously expensive. Uh, and you thought to yourself, you know what, I'm going to save some time, I'm going to save some money, and I'm going to skip the primer step. 
I'm just going to put the paint right on the wall. And how many of us, after all that labor and all the taping and the masking and all the cleanup, had then stood back and looked at the wall, we could see shades of other colors below the paint that we just painted. We see color popping through that shouldn't be there. And we regret that the foundation that we made for that paint job was, was faulty. We didn't put the primer on the wall the way that we should. And because of that, these colors bled through and now we have to do the job all over again. God is foundational to us. And if our relationship with him is not right, then you could put massive amounts of energy into your other relationships and they too will not be right. We need to be right with the Lord first before we can be, hope to be right with anyone else. But this morning, we're going to consider that, that problems with our vertical relationship will not only lead to trouble in our relationships with one another, with other people, that vertical relationship can also impact our relationship with the rest of what God has made. And so again, we're in chapter 4 of Hosea, and um, I'm going to be reading, beginning with the passages we studied last week, Hosea chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, and then we're going to extend into verse 3 today for our study this morning. So the Lord says through Hosea, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no steadfast love, there is no faithfulness, and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Let's take a moment to bow our heads and thank the Lord for his word as we prepare ourselves to study it. Lord God, please grant us with eyes to see and ears to hear this morning as we've come before your holy scripture. And many have read your scripture and turned away from it. Many have listened to the words of wisdom that you have given and they have ignored your instructions, Lord God. Even most of us have done that. But Father, we pray that this morning you would prevent that from happening, Lord God. Help our worship to be pleasing to you and help this time of, of growing in you and discipleship be of benefit to our walk with you, Lord God. We're grateful for the prophet Hosea and for the things that he shared in confronting the northern kingdom of Israel's sin. We pray that as we, we look at Hosea's interaction with his people and with God that we will be able to learn from that and that we would be grateful for the interaction that we get to have with you. Help us, Lord God, uh, to take action as a result of the things that you have shown us today, Lord God. Let us be doers of the word and not just hearers. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Those who call upon the name of the Lord today have been brought into a covenant with God. We spent a lot of time talking about that last week. It is a gracious covenant. It is a covenant that provides blessings that we could not afford. It is a covenant that is upheld by the power of God himself. And so it is a secure and a lasting covenant. The covenant that established the church is not the same covenant that governed God's interaction with Israel at the time of Hosea's prophecy. The covenant that prophet Hosea and the rest of Israel was operating under at the time uh, that this was written serves specifically as a covenant of works. The way that a covenant of works functions, the hope of blessing hinges on the two parties who are involved in that covenant keeping their respective ends of the covenant. God has kept his end of the covenant when it comes to Israel and the northern kingdom. Uh, we see in Genesis chapter um, one verses, or 12, verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the Lord that I will show you. And I, says God, 
will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who curse you and him who dishonors you. I, says God, will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as you read the history of Israel, God's promises are pouring forth into the nation. He has given them these things that he told them he would give them. He's miraculously made a great nation from two people who were as good as dead. Abraham and Sarah in their advanced age had never had children, and yet God miraculously gave them an offspring. And from that offspring springs the 12 nations of Israel eventually. He has provided for them when they have gotten into trouble. When the world has afflicted them, he has rescued them. He rescued them from slavery in Egypt and, and brought them out of that affliction. He has brought them into a good and plentiful land. He has supplied prophets, priests, and kings to govern over them and to direct them and to instruct them. God has kept his end of the agreement completely. But when it comes to this two-way covenant, this covenant of works, Israel has not kept their end of the agreement. They have fallen short of faithfulness to Yahweh, despite all of his deep faithfulness to them. They have broke the law of God. They have forsaken his commandments and acted as if it has no bearing upon them. They have neglected their worship of Yahweh, worshiping God in the ways he never commanded them to worship and failing to worship him in the ways that he instructed them to do so. They have split their worship between Yahweh and other false gods, so they have not been committed to him. They've ignored every warning and correction that God has sent for their preservation. And so all of the potential blessings that were a part of that original covenant are now in jeopardy. Of particular concern here in verse 3 is the status of the land. In just the three chapters that we have studied so far, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but we've heard several strategic mentions of the land. Hosea seems to constantly be going back to this idea of the land and the role that it plays in, in Israel's relationship with God. So in chapter 1, just the very second verse of the whole book, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom, by forsaking the Lord. The land commits it. Now here we see a correlation between the covenant people and the land that God has given to them as a blessing of the covenant. The people are being unfaithful to God in their worship, in their devotion, and in their obedience to the law. Their unfaithfulness makes them guilty before Him. But we see here that the land itself is also counted as guilty because of the fact that it is under the care and dominion of the sinful people who inhabit it. The land is implicit because it is inhabited and ruled by sinners. As chapter one progresses, God instructs Hosea to prophesy concerning a very dark event in the history of the covenant people. The great schism that occurred when the 10 northern tribes split off and separated themselves from the southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah. The land, as it was established by God, was to be one nation. One nation under God. That's not a phrase unique to America. It's stolen from Israel. They were to be one united people. But God, after the reign of King Solomon, uh, but after the reign of King Solomon, division afflicted God's people. King Rehoboam was foolish. He did not reign according to the wisdom that his father had reigned by. He listened to the wisdom of wicked men. And so as a result of that, there was great unrest in the land and rebellion came as a result. A man named Jeroboam led the northern tribes to separate from the southern tribes. The nation of Israel splits in two, and the land began to function as a divided realm. 
Bloodshed follows Jehu and Jehoram years later as uh, there is much subterfuge and deception about who is reigning and who should be on the throne. And, and God instructs Hosea to name his first son Jezreel to draw attention back to the great errors that have happened, particularly in that great city Jezreel uh, where these kings were slaughtered and, and many people were put to death. That error is a judgment on the people of Israel. They have ignored the Lord God and now they must be called to task for their disobedience. The land that was promised to them was to be a holy land as they were to be a holy people as the God they represent is a holy God. But due to their unruly behavior, the consequence of their disobedience is starting to bear, uh, bear difficulty in the lives of the, those in the north. Hosea's prophecy represents the last prophetic address of the northern people as the people of God. The Lord is going to undo that northern aspect of the nation. But we've also seen, reading through the first three chapters, that not all is lost. In the 11th verse of the first chapter of Hosea, uh, we see this glimmer of hope communicated by the prophet. He alludes to a day when the children of Judah and the children of Israel will be gathered together again after many years of being divided. And the sins and the injustices that have stained Jezreel will be forgiven. And God will accomplish a kind of restoration. We learn there that Jezreel, this, this word that means God has scattered, can also mean God sows. So it goes from being a, a, an indictment to being a promise of God building and, and producing life again. In chapter 2, Hosea recalls the love that Yahweh showed to Israel in the days when he brought her out of bondage in Egypt and moved her towards a land of their own. Since that time, Israel has not been faithful to the covenant of God, but an even greater covenant is in the plans, one that will bring peace between God and his chosen people. And God will sow his bride for himself. Where will he sow her? He will sow her in the land. Speaking of that new and better covenant, Hosea says in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So there's much emphasis on the land throughout these first three chapters of Hosea. And that doesn't stop here in chapter four. Does God have a covenant specifically with the land? The answer to that is no. A covenant is always between two living parties. When covenants are ratified, and we see this throughout the Old Testament, and we see even into the new, those covenants must be ratified by blood. That signifies that they are vows and sacred promises made that if violated are punishable by death. And they will last the extension of the life of those who are involved in those covenants. And that's why when Abraham enters into covenant with God, um, God instructs him to put together a blood sacrifice to indicate that this covenant is sealed by blood. When the new covenant comes, how is the new covenant brought forth? In the blood of Jesus Christ. So, so God does not establish covenants with inanimate objects, but the covenant with Israel does have implications upon the land because Israel has broken every boundary that God established with his covenant law. The land that was a covenant blessing uh, to them begins to mourn. And that's what we see here in the third verse of chapter 4. 
Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, and heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So first we see here that everyone who dwells in the land is languishing, and that's definitely the case in the northern kingdom. There is great tribulation. There, there is pressure on every side. The northern kingdom is constantly fearing that other more powerful nations are going to try to push across the borders and take the Holy Land for their own. There isn't a sense of peace. There isn't a sense of confidence. So this doesn't appear to be the land of milk and honey they originally saw and were promised because God has changed it as a consequence of their disobedient actions. Because they have failed to keep the covenant that God made with them, there isn't an abundance anymore. They are taking a step backwards. The disobedience of Israel has caused the land to enter into this sense of dread and doubt, a sad sense of loss that has repercussions on the life that dwells within the land, and not just the human life. The, the, the land, the air, and the sea are all suffering because of this disobedience uh, to the covenant. The beasts of the field are taken away, the birds of the air are taken away, and the fish of the sea are even taken away. The land in a, in a practical and physical sense is no longer providing for the people of God the way that it once did. And this is in many ways like how Hosea, distraught with his wife's unfaithfulness to him, began to take away Gomer's gifts, the oil and the flax and the grain in, in chapter 2 that he had provided for her because of his love for her and his desire to support her. He began to withdraw those blessings as a punishment to her, to expose how much she had relied upon him, even though she was off running around chasing after false lovers. And soon as Hosea's prophecy is fulfilled, the Assyrian Empire is going to march upon the northern kingdom and put a permanent end to the throne that existed there. The land will no longer belong to Israel. Verse 3 gives us a special occasion. We are told very clearly here that Israel's sin had a literal impact on the natural world around them. And so this morning, we're going to pause and we're going to consider how sin in general, how it impacts creation. A land cannot enter into covenant with God, but inanimate objects like land can and do factor into the terms of a covenant. In so much as the land was a conditional promise of the covenant that God had made, obedience to the covenant has marked an impact on the land. This is distinctly different from the way that God addresses the land in the new covenant. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. God's covenant with Israel was not his first covenant, though. It's not the first covenant of works, either. And so we first learned about covenants of work in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The covenant that God makes with Israel follows the pattern of the original covenant of works that God established with Adam, the first man, in the garden. And so in Genesis chapter 1, we read in verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So here we read in the very first chapter of God's revelation to us that man is created in the likeness and in the image of God. Unlike any other parts of the creation, 
man will bear some kind of reflective glory that God will show the rest of the world himself through man. Man's given dominion over the land. And that means it falls within his scope of assigned responsibility. What is this word dominion? And how does it tie man to the land of promise? Dominion is essentially delegated authority. Did God need Adam and Eve to tend to the garden? He did not. He could have very well taken care of the garden himself. In fact, he continued to take care of the garden in ways that Adam and Eve could never have taken care of the garden. But nevertheless, he does invite them into this role, and he does so for their benefit. He gives them a delegated authority so that they will have an area of creation that they are to look after and to care for. The dominion that God assigns to man entails a stewardship of what is not essentially Adam's. God does not turn creation over to Adam that it might be properly his forever, but he does allow Adam to be a a steward of the creation that is rightfully God's. In light of what mankind owes to God, what do we owe to God? Is there anything we don't owe to God? God has given us life. He has given us breath. He has given us communion with him. Because of what God has given to us, and simply because he is worthy of adoration and respect and love, God has the right to demand obedience and service from his creation. That service is intended to be a blessing to God. And so as this delegated authority is placed upon man, God is to be blessed to see the image of God doing things the way that God has ordered him to do those things. It is to be a blessing to us as well. God's commands are always filled with order and grace. And when we do the things that God commands for us to do, then we should never be sorry for that. The resulting peace that comes from obeying God's wisdom and following his path is a blessing to man's heart. But when we fail to obey God in that regard, there are consequences. Consequences that extend beyond man himself, even into that which he has dominion over. So the first man is given generous blessings and even delegated authority, but man is also given regulations to follow as a framework for this representative relationship. Genesis 2 expands upon what was begun in Genesis chapter 1, starting verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there are duties explained here in chapter 2. Adam is to work the garden. Man is to keep it. They are to multiply and fill the garden. These are all responsibilities that come along with this delegated authority that God has blessed them with. There are also restrictions. Adam doesn't have the freedom or the liberty to just go and do whatever he wants to do. They are to only exercise the freedoms given to them through the covenant And they are specifically not to exercise freedoms prohibited in the covenant. They are not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So due to Adam's delegated authority over the land, the land itself is now bound to be impacted by Adam's ability or inability to keep the terms of the covenant. And of course, just as later on Israel will fail this this covenant, Adam fails his covenant. He eats of the one tree that he was restricted from eating from. And how does that affect the non-human elements of creation? It affects it drastically. Death then enters in to the created created order. 
atrophy begins to affect what God has made. Though natural human life at this point is significantly longer than we expect it to be today, death has undeniably become a feature not only of every human life, but of all life within the scope of Adam's dominion. So immediately, this life that Adam and Eve had experienced, which was free from death, is now suddenly inundated with death. When we engage in apologetic work with others who don't believe in God or who push back against God's authority as the scripture describes it, we often hear the question, if God exists, how can he allow such great suffering and hardship in the land? Why is this world such a hostile and dangerous place? And why does death abound here? All calamity is in a general sense the product of man's rebellion. And so the way that we should answer the skeptic is to help them to see, listen, sickness, natural disasters, accidents, these are all tragic. But these are all factors of life as we know it because of the sin that man has brought into what God has made. They are an indirect consequence of mankind's failure to obey God. God, being the good and holy judge that he is, could enact immediate and perfect judgment upon the land. But to do so immediately would necessitate, necessitate the immediate eradication of the sin agents who have corrupted the creation. That's man. God would have to get rid of you and me because each one of us has the freedom to sin against a holy God. So that the existence of heartache and death and sickness and trial in the world is not evidence that God does not exist, nor is it evidence that God is not powerful enough to overcome it. It is evidence of his patience and long-suffering toward mankind. So if we see the creation as being afflicted by calamity because of our own sin, then we can understand why there is such death and confusion in the land. God, in his mercy, endures it for our sake, that he might bring about salvation for his chosen people. Calamity has, is, is the result of has two different kinds of, of results. Calamity is an indirect result of our sin. What that means is that because Adam sinned first and because all of us sin following him, there is a general sense of death and calamity in the world. Uh, we see this illustrated in, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 13. We read uh, Jesus pointing back to a historical event that was fresh in the minds of the people there in Jerusalem. He says, There were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus is directing a misconception among the people when he preaches this, this, uh, this correlation between calamity and God's will. Some believe that when something bad happens to you, it's because you have broken the law of God and this is a direct payment for the bad thing that you did. But Jesus challenges that to some degree here. He shows that calamity is often an indirect result of our sin. Those people who were put to death when they were simply bringing sacrifices to Jerusalem to honor God and to do a good thing for him, 
they weren't worse sinners than anyone else. They just happened to be at a, at, at a place and a time where someone didn't like what they were doing and they suffered the consequences of it. Those who were killed by this tower that fell in this local city, they weren't killed as a result of some sin that they had done that, that earned death by tower. They were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and in God's providence, a tower fell and they happened to die from that. And it wasn't a meaningless death. It wasn't a death that, that, that produced nothing. God uses these deaths to show that we live in a world that is filled with sin, and because of sin, we're constantly in danger of death. So calamity is an indirect result of our sin and the sin of Adam that started all of this. But calamity at times may also be a direct result of our sin. We see this even in the New Covenant in 1 Corinthians 11, 29 through 30. Uh, being as we're going to be celebrating the Lord's table today, this is a good example for us. Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. They've been having some struggles with the way they conduct the Lord's table. They've not been doing it with reverence. They've been rushing to get there fast and eat all the food before those who are poor can get to the food. They haven't been kind to one another in the administration of the bread and the wine. And so it says in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 11, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So there's a general principle. It's a principle we still follow today. But then look at verse 30 and the specificity that Paul brings. It says, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So there was a problem in Corinth, a spiritual problem, but there was also a physical problem. There were people getting sick in Corinth. There were people who were, who were dying, literally. And Paul makes the bold statement that there was a link between the spiritual and the physical there, that some of this sickness and some of this death was, in fact, a direct result of the disobedience of the people who were engaging poorly in the Lord's table, who were not caring about the, the reasons and the meanings that God has given to us this sacrament. So there are, there are both kinds of of correlations between sin and between our sin, uh, between uh, uh, calamity and between our actions. But we do need to be careful here. Without prophetic instruction, I don't think we should spend too much time trying to draw definitive lines between our personal sins and the hardships that God allows us to experience. If we do, we risk putting words into God's mouth. There might be a time when, when you go through a difficult trial and you might sit back and wonder, well, I've got to figure this out. I've got to figure out what sin I did that would cause God to put me through this hardship. Because this is obviously something I don't want to have to go through. So this must be God punishing me for something. But if we think that direction and we draw some sort of conclusion about what sin I did that might have led me to there, I might actually be putting words into God's mouth and saying, God did this for this reason when the reasons of God have not necessarily been fully exposed to me. You might think that you're not allowed to have children. Your husband, you, you, a husband and a wife trying to have babies together, they haven't been able to, to conceive, and they might think, well, what have we done wrong in this? It might not be at all that you've done anything wrong. How many faithful people in the Bible were not allowed to have children? We know that Elizabeth and, and Zechariah, they were barren for much of their lives. And God was doing that because he had a miraculous plan for a son to come later on, John the Baptist. And so he kept them barren for a time, not because of their sin, but because of his perfect plan. You might think to yourself, why did I get sick? Now, there are times when, when your sin has a direct result. 
So if you got sick because you were being promiscuous and breaking God's law and you, you, you contracted an STD, then you could definitively say, well, my sin has afflicted me. And this is a, an allowed punishment for my sin. God is letting me go through this because I've broken the law of God. But if you get COVID or you, you get the flu or you, or you get any other kind of sickness, to sit back and say, well, this is definitely the result of sin, you might be wrong in that. God allows the people that he loves and cares for to go through trials because sometimes that sickness teaches you to bind your hopes not to your health, but to the God who, who made you and sustains you. Our sickness can drive us to a greater sense of faithfulness and dependence upon the God who loves us. All calamity comes from sin in general. And God has the right to bring about a chastisement for believers to refine them or punish non-believers and condemn them if they've fallen into sin. But we don't always see the purpose behind every calamity. Here in the northern kingdom, all facets of life are headed for a real, real-time judgment that flows from the breach of, of covenant. And how do we know that's particularly the case? We know not because we're putting two to two together, but because God tells us prophetically through the mouth of Hosea. What does this judgment upon the land accomplish? Why does God allow the northern kingdom to live through these difficult times? And why does he allow their throne to be stopped? And then in a more general sense, why do we as God's church today, why do we have to live through calamity and difficulty and persecution? Well, the consequences of sin teach us the reality and the seriousness of our fallen state. I love what commentator Richard Caldwell said about this. He says, we may see a society that's in the depths of degradation and say that deserves the judgment of God. And it does. But that degradation is a part of God's judgment when he gives a people up to their depravity. So in the world today, we see many societies that they don't have a care for God at all. We see governments that are going in the exact opposite direction of God's scriptures. And so you see widespread sin there. You see destruction, you see oppression, you see the poor overlooked, you see manipulation and lies. And you might think to yourself, that nation needs judgment from God. But in a very real sense, their breaking of God's law is a judgment upon themselves. It's not a nation where you're going to want to live. It's not a nation where true justice and peace and goodness happen. Time and time again, a famine or a drought or pestilence is used in the biblical history as punishment for God's people or for those who are not God's people. And in a general sense, these disasters are still doing that today. We have brought this upon ourselves because we, like Adam, have gone astray from the Lord. God is no less sovereign in the new covenant than he was in the old covenant. And so today, as sin is very much so a factor that keeps people from God, so too do we see the general indirect effects of sin in the suffering that happens in the world. When, when a tsunami sweeps across Japan, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because people are dying there, people are hurting there, but it also breaks my heart because that was not something that would have happened in the Garden of Eden. That's not something that would have affected the people of the garden because that kind of calamity is the result of us rebelling against God and being kicked out of that perfect fellowship with the Lord God. When we see an earthquake in Haiti and buildings fall and people are crushed, we should mourn the loss of those people. We should also mourn our involvement that, that we as a, as a world are an unclean people, that apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, we deserve destruction and calamity. But the benefit to us 
is not in tracing a direct line back to the guilty party who sinned and, and, and spurred on a particular calamity. Rather, it is more beneficial to us to draw the line all the way back to the first man and to recognize that all calamity in the world is the result of that first man's rebellion against God's law. And because he was a representative for us, because he was a federal head in that, in that covenantal arrangement, we now, as his descendants, are as guilty as Adam was of rebelling against the Lord God. Last week, we spoke at some length to the, distinct, uh, the distinction of the new covenant, how it is different and definitively better than the old covenant that it replaced. It's not a covenant that's hinging on our obedience to the covenant as the old covenant was. It is a covenant that is hinging on the righteous works of perfect Jesus. And so while the new covenant is distinct from the old covenant, it does contain a better promise concerning the land. That's not just a feature of the old covenant. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. The Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the covenant of law that was given through Moses, the Davidic covenant, each of these contracts with God includes details about the way that the people under the terms of those covenants were to dwell in the land. And so the new covenant in Jesus' blood also speaks of a land, a better country that we are to fix our hearts and minds upon. And when scripture tells us how to think about that better country, God's people are told not only to anticipate it, but to long for that better country. This is an aspect of the inheritance that God has secured for us through Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at the new covenant and the, the aspects of the new covenant that have to do with that land promise. In Romans chapter 8, and this is a beautiful chapter that talks about so many of the excellent promises we have in Christ. But in verses 18 through 25, Paul's going to discuss the land ramifications of this new, co new covenant. So he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope we were saved. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The first thing that we see here in Paul's addressment of the land aspects of the new covenant is that there are admittedly still sufferings in this present time. Though the new covenant has been inaugurated by Christ, it is not absolutely consummated yet. We still live in a world where people are free to break the laws of God, even saved people. And so because of that, we still have to deal with the ramifications of that sin, whether they be direct ramifications or indirect ramifications. The new covenant uh, will put an end to that, but not yet. When Christ returns and judges the, the heavens and the earth, then all sin that has affected the creation will be eradicated once and for all, and that new heavens and that new earth will com 
completely spotless and free from the kind of degradation and atrophy that the world experiences today. Secondly, we see that creation was subjected to futility because of the, the sins of man. Now, what was creation subjected to futility by? Was it subjected by Adam? Some would argue that. But I would suggest that it is subjected by God himself when he brought about the proper judgment of Adam's law-breaking. Adam sinned, but the authoritative hand of God issues the curse of, uh, of death on all that Adam had been given dominion over. And so it is God who subjects the creation to futility, for creation is God's subject. The futility points back to the frustration with which Adam is told he will have to toil in making a life for himself in the land post-fall. I was just talking about that with my kids this week in family worship time, how one of the direct results of Adam's sin was that the land was going to be difficult for him to work from that point forward, that he wouldn't get enjoyment like he did before, that it would be through struggle and trial and the sweat of his brow that he would provide for his family. And so we see that, that the creation is subjected to futility. There are weeds in your lawn because of this. Uh, there are uh, there are ants in our kitchen right now because of this, right? Difficulties that we have to overcome because of uh, the, the corruption of creation. Thirdly, though there are sufferings in this present time, there is also hope. Built into the new covenant is a better and sure promise concerning the land, one that puts these sufferings into a proper perspective. The current hardships we experience are not worth even comparing to the glory that will be revealed when this creation is undone and the new creation is brought to bear. Like a mother who's going to endure the temporary pains of childbirth in order to hold her newborn, looking back on it, she doesn't just think about the pain, she thinks about the joy that the pain produced. And so the pain cannot rival the joy. We will suffer, Christians. And I think in the days to come, the church has a lot more suffering in store. The more our nation uh, moves farther and farther away from the standards of morality that are pre presented to us in his word, uh, the more that Christians who stand for the truth and live for the glory of God will be under scrutiny and attack. And so let's prepare our hearts for that. But one of the great ways that we prepare for that is by thinking about the glory that God has in store for us. This great and wonderful inheritance that is being kept in heaven for us is something that will make our present suffering and struggles feel like nothing, like a walk in the park. A restoration is on the horizon, one that will bring great relief from the hardships of the current state of creation. And so Paul frames out this restoration from two parallel perspectives. The saved will without a doubt receive a new body to enjoy eternity with. So we're stuck in this vessel, this, what the scripture describes as jars made of clay. Our bodies are not made perfect like our souls are made perfect right now. And in fact, the, the promise of this future kingdom that is better than the creation we're in now, the body you have now is not fit for it. It would not work there. The body that you have is, is not worthy of the eternity that God has prepared for you and promised to you. And so we get to look forward to the fact that when this earthly body dies, God will in time present us with a better one, one that is fit for eternity, one that will not be corruptible or, or subject uh, to the atrophy that Adam introduced into creation. But the second perspective of this, uh, this restoration has to do with the creation itself. Not only will our bodies be made new, but the creation will receive a new physical manifestation of itself, the new heavens and the new earth, a Jerusalem where we can live near to God 
constantly enjoy because of the great grace that he has given to us. Those in Hosea's day did not know to anticipate this, but we've been given insight into this completed restoration and it should be to us one of God's sweeter gifts. Now, before we conclude and and transition to a time of the table, I did want to address uh, something that's often on the hearts and minds of people today. Considering that creation is corrupted by the sin of man, considering that there is a promise of a new creation that will come with the return of Jesus Christ, what should our attitude towards this present creation be in light of all that we have learned? Well, I think the first thing that we should think of when we think about the world that we live in and how we are to be stewards of it, I think we need to recognize first and foremost that the difficulties and the shortcomings of this creation are our fault. And we need to own that. We have no right to demand of God or to expect of Him that He will give us an easy and clean path to the promises that He has laid out in Scripture. When we are sick, we don't get to shake our fist at God and say, why have you done this to me, Lord? Rather, our attitude should be, it is right that this is happening to me. I am a sinner against God, and so is every other man, woman, and child. And so it is an amazing grace that God does just not eradicate us for our uh, rebellion immediately. Let us instead think carefully about the, the role that we play in our own calamity. Because of our sin, we have to go through this hardship and heartache. So let us own the fact that creation is not the perfect place we want it to be because of what we have done in breaking the covenant of God. We should also acknowledge that there's still a mandate to have dominion. Though our dominion can only be imperfect and incomplete, nevertheless, we are still told to live in the land, to multiply and to fill it, and to have dominion over the things that God has made. That dominion comes in several different forms. It begins even in our homes. As we build families, God has created an order in the family by which there will be peace, by which there will be a direction towards worshiping and giving glory to God. And so, men, you are given by God a command and a charge, a delegated authority to be an encouragement to your family, to teach your wife and your children the things of Lord as you learn them, uh, to make sure that they are provided for, to work hard to meet their needs to the best of your ability, to protect them from error and confusion and deception. Uh, You have a responsibility in that regard. Moms, you have a delegated authority to to raise up your children in the fear of the Lord and to care for them and to nurture them and to be a support to your husband as he leads your family in the truth. And so that's where dominion begins is in the home, but it extends beyond the home into all spheres of our influence. Wherever God takes us, we should look at taking opportunities wherever we are planted to shine the light of Christ, whether that be in our workplace whether that be involvement in the governments that are over us, or whether that be in uh, our neighborhood and the people that are around us and live in our communities, we should look to have some sort of influence on the people that, that we are around because we have the truth of God. God has revealed to us the things that other people are blind to. And so let us use that opportunity to share the gospel of Christ and to exert the, the, the good knowledge that God has given to us in the ways that we live in this world, even though it is imperfect. Thirdly, the earth is still the Lord's and everything in it is the Lord's. Psalm 24.1 reminds us of this, right? And so therefore, even though this world is passing away and even though it will be replaced by a perfect heavens and earth, that doesn't mean that we get to treat this world as if it is garbage, as if it has no value whatsoever. It still belongs to God. 
Ron, if I were to borrow your car for the weekend, and if I were to uh, bring it back to you, and there's a dent in the car, and there's no gas in the tank, and uh, one of the tires is wobbling because of how badly I hit the curb, if I were to treat it with disrespect and return it to you, you would probably not be very happy with me. When, when something is, is given to us as a stewardship, we need to do all in our power to care for that thing. And the Lord has given to us this earth to enjoy and to fill and to use as a resource for life. But we should care for it. We should look after the world. That doesn't mean we let the creation become some sort of strange God to us. And this is a danger, friends, right now because we live in a world where exactly that is happening. So we need to remember as the church that creation is just that. It is creation. It is not meant to be a worshipped thing. We must not bow down to what God has made any more than John was able to bow down to the angels in heaven. When he tried to, the angels told him to get up to worship God alone. And so if the world is going to try to come at us and tell us that we need to give reverence to Mother Earth or to look at the world as if it is the highest order of our responsibility uh, to, to take pristine care of the world, we need to remember that our God is in heaven. He is the one who made the world. Creation is meant to be enjoyed. And so we should behold the garden and we should partake in it. We should eat of the world. We should enjoy the things that are in the world. We should use the resources that God has given to us. It is here to sustain us, not the other way around. So guard yourself against any ethic that adds some unbiblical law to what the Word has told us we are responsible to do. Your carbon footprint is not a synonym for your righteousness. So think carefully about this world that we live in that would have us believe at times that the highest order of morality is making sure you recycle or that you don't pollute the earth. When in reality, we know that God has given this earth to us to be a blessing and a benefit to us. Don't love the world or the things that are in the world. Don't become so wrapped up with the world that it becomes more important to you than the God who, who granted it to you. But rather look to the new heavens and the new earth as the eventual fulfillment of God's land promises to his people. To Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to all who are the true Israel of God, a land awaits. In the meantime, the land that we have been given, while it is imperfect, let us do all in our power to be good stewards of it. And let us enjoy it and praise God for the blessings that it provides for us. Let's have a word of prayer and then we're going to transition into our time in the table. God, we thank you for your grace and we pray that you would Help us to have right views of the world. Father, the voices that would influence our thinking abound all around us. So quiet those voices and let the voice of our good shepherd be the only one that we hear and respond to. We thank you for the scripture and for the confidence that we can have in it, that it is your true word that you have preserved over the centuries to give to us today, that we might be equipped and ready to be your people. We love you and we pray that you would give us uh, great joy as we transition to in a time of uh, ministering the sacraments and being blessed as a people by the things that you provided to keep us strong in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.